In this month's Dhamma podcast, we present Chapter 10, Managing Oneself, Vipassana, Work, and Social Action, from the upcoming audiobook, Realizing Change, by Ian Hetherington. Chapter 10 Managing Oneself, Vipassana, Work, and Social Action. Most of us want to make a difference in relationships, at work, to the well-being of the planet. We have energy, skills and experiences to contribute and there is special satisfaction when our efforts bring about good. Often, we'd like to do more, but somehow our actions don't match those fine intentions we have. Political, social and economic problems have always existed but with today's almost instant communications, we can see just how widespread these are. The frightened refugees vowing revenge, another tainted food scare, the latest corruption scandal. Why, even now, we may ask, do these same patterns keep recurring? Why have world organisations like the UN and individual governments not being able to deal effectively with problems such as communal tension, poverty, unemployment and abuse of power. Do we ever learn? One answer is that we're dealing with symptoms, the outward manifestations of these problems, not with the underlying causes, the greed, hatred and other negative feelings that pervade the world. Problems may seem to disappear, but because the underlying sickness persists, the symptoms keep appearing again and again. Then the people whose task it is to implement solutions through social structures or legislation may not have the necessary love and compassion to achieve their goal. Government organisations, for instance, often deal with problems in a distant and superficial manner and intended results are not achieved. Vipassana offers an alternative approach to solving these problems and the untold misery they cause. Know-how and resources are certainly necessary, but above all, wisdom is required. By applying the benefits of meditation in a practical way, the problems can be tackled at two levels. Ultimately, the solution has to be found at the individual level, each of us working on ourselves in a sustained campaign to remove negativity from our own minds, so that our personal input in different situations is as constructive as possible. Simultaneously, we can also operate at the institutional level, encouraging the development of Dhamma principles and practices in corporate, professional, bureaucratic and political organisations. By their own example, meditators sometimes inspire others to change themselves. They can also initiate or add momentum to positive changes, small or large, across the spectrum of society. My friends say that I have changed for the better. Have I? Though the answer is quite simply yes, the process of change was very difficult. 
though my understanding of the inner self and awareness of the outer world was quite limited, I used to dream of doing something good for society. Why and how I never knew. I vividly remember in class 7 when I read about the Green Revolution, which brought radical changes to agricultural output in northern India. I started dreaming of replicating that success in my home state, Bihar. By the time I was 13 years old, I got fascinated by the Communist Party ideology. And in the 1989 general elections, I worked to mobilise support for this party. I wanted to do something big. Of course, I wanted to do so many things. But what did I do? I could not do anything. And the worst was that my academic performance deteriorated. Despite the potential and also the desire to do well, my final result was so dismal. Due to various negativities, I couldn't do anything in the proper way. I'm still unable to believe that a simple meditation technique like Vipassana can do such a wonder for me. It has given me a solution to each and every problem. I don't claim that now I am free from all negativity, but certainly today I know how to deal with it. My concentration has gone up, and with it my understanding of events is deeper. Due to proper understanding, now, I respond to any event in a better way. Vipassana has taught me how to stay cool and do my job effectively. Every day, I try to improve upon the last. I'm sure that if I keep on practicing Vipassana, I will certainly realise my dream of doing something good. Durgesh Kedia is an MBA student in Pune, India. I've never wanted to just do a job. For as long as I can remember, I've needed to feel that whatever I'm doing is making a difference, is something, even if only a tiny something, that will leave the world a better place after me. And I love my work as an environmental scientist. Soil erosion, actually. It brings twin delights, knowing that my daily labours contribute a little to the long, slow business of making the planet healthy again, and discovering the wonders hidden in even the most taken for granted of natural processes. How many times have I marvelled at the way muddy water flows into puddles? Anyway, that's how I feel on good days, on bad days. No matter how much I remind myself of the big picture, the crushing weight of academic bureaucracy and institutionalised power gaming overwhelms me. Futility rules. Why am I doing all this? It's then that my vipassana helps me most. It helps me to be there, to concentrate on what I'm actually doing, rather than what I imagine I'm contributing to or imagine I'm battling against. What is that phrase? Contentless hope. It fills my meditation and spills out into the rest of my life, like water spills out of a puddle. And I go along with it, and am less hopeless. Dr David Favis Mortlock is a researcher at the Environmental Change Institute, University of Oxford, UK. work to do.
Strength of personality is an important prerequisite for responsible social action. The foundation for a person's character and their progress, both worldly and spiritual, lies in one's moral qualities. Observing the five precepts, doing one's best not to kill, steal, lie, commit sexual misconduct or take intoxicants, is a part of the technique of meditation. But this baseline of morality extends beyond the Vipassana course itself. Maintaining and developing our own moral sensibility is particularly important in helping us successfully overcome the pressures and difficulties of everyday life. We attempt to avoid harming others with hurtful physical actions or words. We try instead to be kind and understanding in our dealings, to respect all life, to be generous, open and truthful. Right livelihood, making a living in line with the moral precepts, is also part of the path. Everyone needs money, but how to earn it without harming oneself or others in the process? Sitting daily with Vipassana and applying it in the workplace, we begin to see what is possible. Building is now just all business, really. I'm more or less a businessman, I guess. I can still hold a hammer, hit the nail on the head, but I think being careful about dealings with money and people is most important because it's their big commitment in life to build a house or whatever, and it's your responsibility to make sure it goes right. There's a lot of difficulty doing the right thing in the world where everybody's out to get what they can. So you feel like, I'll have to grab so that I'm just equal to the others. I'm not really ripping anybody off. I'm just grabbing my share of the cake because it's going so quickly before my eyes that soon I'll only be left with the crumbs. All the responsibility and only crumbs. But it's not really like that. It's fair. It has to be fair. And in fair dealing, you have to take control. You're the builder or you're the business person. You're the one that sets the deal and you have to set it right for yourself and stick by it. That way you set it right with everybody else as well. It's taken me a long time. It's very difficult. But by practicing Vipassana, being grounded in moral principles, it gets ingrained so that you start living properly. Instead of thinking you live properly or talking about living properly, you live properly. And then your relationships with other people benefit and you're more at peace with yourself. In conversation, Jim Tolbert from Southern Australia. A world-class sportsman, Vishen Singh Bedi, represented India in the national cricket squad for many years. Cricket is a way of life, and I see so much similarity with Vipassana. Both involve applying a fairly consistent amount of concentration and effort over a period of time. When we say that someone is not playing cricket, it means that he is not being fair in life, he is not upright, he is not honest. As the late Prime Minister of Australia, Sir Robert Menzies, once said, if only America and Russia played cricket, 
this world would be a much happier place to live in. To me, what we're taught in a Vipassana course is a psyching process, how to pick yourself up at the right moment. I had many limitations with my own cricketing ability, and I can tell you, great players like Sunil Gavaskar and Kapil Dev, how they psyched themselves up and then had pride in their performance. When I say pride, that should not be taken in a sense of conceit or arrogance. This pride means satisfaction at your personal performance. If you're not proud of yourself, nobody else is going to be proud of you. And this personal pride should be followed by something called national pride. Personally, I've learned life is a never-ending process of learning. And I have learned from Vipassana that I can introduce this technique to young kids whom I'm training from 10 to 15 years of age, to improve concentration, to inculcate some kind of belief in their own ability, and some kind of discipline which cricket requires for the betterment of their own personality, and for the betterment of the society in which they're going to grow up. And also, I may add, to eliminate the possibility of ball tampering, betting and bribery, I'm sure this technique would help to a great extent. My daily work requires a high level of commitment and good organisational skills. I'm the director of a five years young organisation, which has grown very rapidly and has five major projects, four of which are businesses distinctly different in nature and set in different localities. They include a plant nursery and landscaping business, a cafe and lunch delivery service, a family relations centre and a counselling and consulting centre. The two non-counselling type businesses are in fact training so-called unemployable young people in life and work skills so that they are employable and have a clear sense of purpose and direction. I find that the regular practice of Vipassana allows me to deal effectively with tensions which arise in my day-to-day -day work, enables me to get unstressed quickly, helps me to stay more balanced, and assists me to deal with issues with greater insight. Vipassana meditation is an excellent tool for self-therapy. I have a greater understanding of cause and effect, and most of the time I'm able to examine my own motives and reactions without those reactions spilling uncontrollably onto others. I think I am more compassionate towards myself as well as others. And I'm also able to take firm action and speak openly and truthfully. I believe I promote the conduct of the organization's business in an ethical and principled manner. Brenda Nancaro lives in Queensland, Australia. Rup Jyoti, a Harvard PhD, is vice chairman of his family's business empire and an advisor on administrative reforms and economic policies to the government in Nepal. Vipassana is relevant to all sections of our society and all types of human activities. It is certainly relevant to the business world, to the world of trade and commerce, to the world of manufacturing, to the world of economic activities. 
Vipassana teaches how to tackle ups and downs in life calmly. One engages in trade and the price sometimes goes up and sometimes goes down. One engages in manufacturing and one is faced with problems and uncertainties all round. Production problems, labour problems, raw material problems, marketing problems, finance problems, and it goes on. One may engage in any type of business activity and there are always problems. There are always uncertainties. There are always ups and downs. We were expecting sales to go up, but they go down. We were hoping the profits to rise, but they decline. We're expecting the interest rates to go down, but they go up. We're expecting the cost of goods sold to decrease, but they increase. Are we able to deal with such situations calmly? Most certainly, if we're practicing Vipassana and applying it in our daily lives. Vipassana teaches how not to get upset in life. Business management involves dealing with people. Good people, bad people, all kinds of people. Some behave decently, some don't. Some are satisfied customers, some aren't. Some are reliable workers, some aren't. Amidst this maze of uncertainty, there is one certainty. We don't have a choice of people we get to deal with. Whether we like our superiors or not, whether we like our subordinates or not, whether we like our working conditions or not, whether we like the task assigned to us or not, we may not have any immediate options. Does it help to get upset? No. It only makes things worse, not only for ourselves, but also for those around us. But we do just that, unless we've learned Vipassana meditation and are practicing it regularly. Vipassana teaches how not to react in the face of provocation. Friendly meetings turn into shouting matches. Nice customers suddenly get angry. Employees don't do what they are told to do. Workers make impractical, unrealistic demands. Bosses give unreasonable, impossible tasks. Do we get provoked and react with a fit of temper? That's what we tend to do, which makes the situation worse for ourselves and for others, unless we are trained in Vipassana meditation and have learned to observe our sensations, the natural vibrations within ourselves. Vipassana provides us with a skill to deal with all types of situations in life, with serenity, tranquility and equanimity. There could not be another sphere of life where such a skill is of more utility, of more relevance, of more importance than the corporate world. As a businessman, the profit motive, the desire to make money is still there. Profit for whom is the key question. As I've grown in Dhamma, my attitude has gradually changed. It seems to me now that it's necessary to run and grow a successful business because it can help so many people, from one's own immediate family to thousands of families who are getting a livelihood from different enterprises and the banks and shareholders. For our own needs, we could easily live off the income from property, but that would not be fulfilling our proper responsibilities so we keep taking on new projects. Above all, as someone who is successful, rich and famous, 
you have to beware inflating your ego. There are so many temptations, intentional or otherwise, for oneself and one's children also. The technique of vipassana is particularly important in helping to manage oneself and keep the ego down to size. Vipassana teaches us how to be responsible without developing attachment. Vipassana does not make us indifferent. It makes us more aware of our responsibilities. Vipassana trains us how not to react involuntarily, but how to be properly proactive. Vipassana does not make us unambitious. It makes us more resourceful. Vipassana teaches us how to tolerate short-term pains for the long-term gains. Vipassana develops our willpower to persist with the right actions. It makes us more patient, more persevering. Vipassana makes us capable of doing all this by making us become aware of our inner self. With Vipassana, we get rid of our negativities and purify our mind. And a pure mind, guided by pure Dhamma, always makes the right decision, always takes the right actions. It's very high pressure, particularly for a professional woman trying to have an independent life outside of work. Before the course, I found it impossible to prioritise, couldn't judge for myself what was important, didn't really know who I was or how stressed out I got until I was actually near the falling point. In Vipassana, I found a bridge, the connection between mind and body, intangible emotions with tangible sensations, the connection between who I am and who I want to be. It's just a beginning, a small step towards balance. Nita Suhami lives in New York and works at a bank in Wall Street. India today is carving out a role as a world leader in software and other fields of engineering. In the city of Mumbai, Anand Engineers has adopted a novel approach. During the early 1990s, this chemical engineering company, employing 100 staff and workers, set up a research project on the effect of Vipassana on business management. Jayantalal Shah, the managing director at Anand Engineers, had long been convinced of the link between inner development and material prosperity. Vipassana meditation, he felt on the basis of his own experience, offered a method to achieve this ambitious goal. As he repeatedly attended retreats each year, the changes in his behaviour and attitude were appreciated by fellow directors who also started meditating. Paid leave was offered to anyone wanting to learn the technique and more than 75% of company personnel have now taken a 10-day course. As minds slowly shifted and old habits with them, material results began to follow. The positive changes in individuals through meditation helped to improve the quality of interpersonal relations at every level in the company. Dispassionately reviewing their own role, the directors realised that arrogance in their attitude to the workforce led to insecurity and a lack of trust on both sides. 
little by little, contractual obligations became converted into real relationships. When fatigue stress resulting from prolonged illness in the family gave rise to erratic behaviour in a senior member of staff, special care and sympathy were given to her. In another case, an unskilled worker was due to be sacked for shoddy work and being uncooperative. However, closer investigation revealed that the company had been expecting the man to take on other duties without recognition. As a result, he was offered a new post and all grievances vanished. Many decisions which were previously being imposed by the directors are now being transferred to self-managing teams. Teamwork and counselling help to reduce conflicts in the organisation. Motivation and a sense of shared responsibility have grown and the company as a whole has become more harmonious and productive. Since the opportunity to learn Vipassana was offered to the workforce in the mid-1980s, there had been no industrial unrest or strike at the company. Supervisors show greater understanding and respect for workers and all reports reduce stress due to better communication and greater job satisfaction. Overall improvements in the working environment have meant that the business has expanded, with turnover growing tenfold over a decade and increased profits to match. However, the company's emphasis has also moved with the times, beyond pursuit of the bottom line, to a broader, deeper vision of wealth creation, including money, health, joyful working relationships and peace of mind. Free welfare programs and a meditation space at the plant also play their part in creating a living, working community. Unforeseen events during 1999 severely tested the company's mission and working practices. A boycott of Indian products by the US administration following nuclear testing on the subcontinent combined with the Indian government's own policy of globalisation and liberalisation, totally transformed Anand Engineer's trading environment. Business was slashed by 40% and healthy profits turned overnight into heavy losses. Everyone felt the pinch. But equanimity, not panic, prevailed. Deep cuts in salaries were introduced, with directors taking the lead. Layoffs across the company were amicably agreed, reducing the workforce by one quarter. Restructuring plans, including investment in new technologies, were rapidly brought forward. Despite the steep learning curve, they are confident that the New Look company will perform well in the global marketplace. The experience of a number of business enterprises has shown that the introduction of Vipassana meditation to the people in the organisation has improved the working atmosphere, the cooperative attitudes and the harmony within. Managers have become more patient in dealing with business uncertainties and more tolerant in dealing with employees' difficulties. Workers have become more reliable and capable of carrying out their tasks even if they entailed repetitious and monotonous routines. Observing the benefits of Vipassana, many business and non-business organisations have begun providing paid leave to their employees 
to attend Vipassana meditation courses. Some have treated Vipassana as a training program. Some have included it in their human resource development activity, and yet others have simply considered it as an aspect of employee welfare. Vipassana has reduced instances of confrontation and situations where conflicts arise unnecessarily. Vipassana helps a person live happily, and happy individuals make a happy organisation. Employees become grateful towards their employers for giving them the opportunity to learn Vipassana, and employers reap the rewards in the form of higher productivity and better morale. As the manager of a small company, I now promote an atmosphere that is more conducive to teamwork and individual decision-making. My management and negotiation style has changed from a more strict to a more supportive and flexible one. The response from the team and our customers has been positive. The employees take more responsibility and are better prepared to make their own decisions. We've become more successful since the customers awarded us with more business. Joaquim Rabin from New Zealand took his first course in 1990 and has been meditating ever since. So, what's the word for someone who's behaving in a neurotic and paranoid fashion? Whatever it is, that was me after committing to meditate for 10 days, 10 hours a day, in silence. I wouldn't say that I'm a total novice at this new age stuff. I've done yoga, but a real workout is still a good run and a set of weights. I attend some spiritual service or meeting every week and have visited almost every denomination of service I can imagine. In fact, to the point, I once visited a Buddhist temple and sat for a half hour of meditation. I can sum up the experience in one word, claustrophobic. Ten days? After about ten minutes, I thought I couldn't breathe. Yet, even with my one less than fulfilling meditation experience, here I was, packing off to a Vipassana meditation retreat. It all started out when I decided to leave my job in March. Everyone told me, Keith, take a few months off to clear your mind. So, in typical type A form, I tried to find a way to cram three months of mind-clearing time into the fewest days. Then I remembered a talk I heard at the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos. Camped out in the hills of Switzerland for a week, with a couple of thousands of your closest world leader friends is Davos. And among the powwows on economics and politics was an oversubscribed panel session entitled Happiness. I guess great power and money do not necessarily guarantee you happiness. So we were there to hear S.N. Goenka promise happiness if we followed this ancient tradition of meditation which can only be taught in a concentrated 10-day course. Being happily, at least frantically, employed at the time, I thought there was no way I'd get 10 days away from work. So now, with some time on my hands, and the desire to find happiness and clarity in fewer than three months, 
I focused on giving Vipassana a try. The other thing that made this interesting was my belief that anything that terrified me this much had to yield some powerful results. Or, of course, it could always send me screaming into the woods after a half hour. As one who's been in the middle of a career search, so much of my energy had been put into finding the next move that made sense. Sense is defined as the next obvious step up the career ladder. As the youngest chief marketing officer in the Fortune 500, I couldn't take a job that wasn't higher up the corporate food chain in either position or company. If I did, I'd look like a loser, wouldn't I? It became clear to me that I created a gallery of phantom spectators who I looked to for approval of my career moves. What would make me happy? What kind of question is that? Day six was a nightmare. Each time the hour sitting would draw to a close, we would hear Goenka begin to chant, which usually lasted a few minutes, but at least we knew it was over. However, there was one really long note that he would hold at the end of the chant. It was in Pali, an ancient Indian language. The word was probably love or something. I swear that note seemed to get longer and longer each time. By the last sitting at the end of the seventh day, I was sure that the sadistic little Goenka was drawing that love word out on purpose to prolong the pain. Then I'd open my eyes and see the guy there with a look of peace and realise, there go my aversions. And I guess that's the point of this entire exercise. We were practising the same thing that we live every day. In meditation, we were experiencing the very physical sensations that we would have in real life when someone insulted us or frustrated us. In meditation, we were learning to watch those impermanent sensations and let them pass, not dwelling on them and making them worse. Of course, we also learned what would happen when we did dwell on them. When I concentrated on the pain in my knee and got angry, it only multiplied the pain. Sounds like the compounded frustration I feel when I think about how angry my boss has made me. However, when I would, calmly, quietly, patiently, persistently, conscientiously, repeatedly, just observe, the pain would pass. There was a real lesson here for my life. Hours and hours of good and bad memories and fantasies were experienced. There were also distracted times during meditation that I was at my creative peak. So where do I go from here since I've been at home? I'm giving a maintenance level of meditation a try. I'm not sure if I'm going to give up my Bordeaux collection just yet or stop participating in the industry of killing animals for food. But I would say that I got enough not to turn my back on the opportunity for greater happiness. So I'll keep being aware, observing, and not reacting. Keith Ferrazzi is now the president and CEO of Yaya, an internet advertising company. Helping Hands People engaged in various fields of social work or the helping professions 
have the chance to make a direct impact on the daily lives of others. Doctors, nurses, teachers, psychologists, counsellors and others all seek to use their talents for our benefit. Noble occupations, maybe, but they carry their own risks. Not just on account of pressing need with external working conditions, but because constant interaction with suffering in others can trigger one's own weaknesses, sucking the helper into the same whirlpool of misery as the client. Vipassana meditation offers a mechanism for functioning sympathetically and effectively in demanding social situations, while protecting oneself and replenishing one's own mental resources. It was not long after I'd started practicing Vipassana that I had the opportunity to put it into practice in a challenging environment as a periodic detention supervisor for the New Zealand Justice Department. Periodic detention is a corrective measure which requires the detainees to give up part of their valued weekend to do compulsory community service. It's a punishment one step removed from imprisonment as a result of having committed crimes such as assault, theft and disorderly behaviour. I'm not sure why I was selected for the job instead of my burly bearded Greek friend who looked like someone not to be messed around with. I, on the other hand, gave the opposite impression of being timid, unassertive and rather green to the ways of the world. That was my impression, at least. On my first day at work, not knowing what to expect, I arrived at the detention centre nervously early. It was a foot-stamping, frigid morning as the warden rattled out a snappy roll call. It fractured the chilly air, but not the icy glare of the detainees. The varying degrees of resentment and sullen aversion suggested that they did not take kindly to their new supervisor. What do they have in store for me? I was in charge of a dozen detainees. Our task for the day was to clear scrubby bush as a school. With some cause for concern, I took an inventory of the pitchforks, slashes, picks, axes, spades and other sharp implements as they were being loaded into the van. The warden must have had a lot of trust in the thick skin of his supervisors. It was not hard to imagine being perfunctorily dispatched in a shallow roadside grave on the way. Fortunately, all these fears did not materialise. I found I could do the job quite well, being equipped with a certain amount of equanimity and quiet compassion which the practice of Vipassana develops. There were no untoward incidents to speak of during my period of employment. However, because of the tense working environment, it was inevitable that stress accumulated during the day. I came to realise very clearly the great value of the daily morning and evening practice of Vipassana. When I returned home and started meditating, there was often an immediate explosive release of the day's stress. It was almost unbelievable. It certainly convinced me that Vipassana is a wonderful mental bath at all levels and an ideal tool for people engaged in demanding fields of social work. Richard Rossi has been sitting in this tradition for 25 years.
Thomas Crisman had been practicing law in the United States for about 10 years when he took his first Vipassana meditation course in 1980. After graduation from engineering school in 1965 and from law school in 1969, he began practicing intellectual property law, a field specializing in patent, trademark and copyright law in Dallas, Texas. Most of his law practice up until his first course had been involved with litigation, that is, the representation of clients in lawsuits with other parties over amounts of money that were significant and over issues about which both parties frequently became very emotionally involved. Litigation in the United States during the last few decades has been characterized by the aggressiveness with which the lawyers represent their clients and the so-called hardball tactics that they employ in order to frustrate and obtain an advantage over the lawyers representing the opposing side. In my own legal career, I wholeheartedly embraced this approach to litigation and the representation of my clients became a personal struggle with the goal of winning over the lawyers on the other side of the case on every issue and at all costs. Generally, losing a small battle during the course of a protracted litigation resulted in anger, animosity and a desire for revenge against the lawyer on the other side who had handed me defeat. Winning and getting even with the lawyers on the other side of the case became an obsession in my work. I believed that it was necessary to be strongly and personally emotionally driven in order to secure victory on behalf of my client. This attitude and behaviour naturally resulted in a tremendous amount of stress, emotional ups and downs and periodic depression. I dealt with these ups and downs in the same way as the lawyers who trained me, including drinking alcohol and other diversions. After practising Vipassana, I began to see that there was a more balanced way of approaching representation of my clients in litigation. I began to work harder to try and find a middle ground or a compromise solution to settle the controversy between the parties to a litigation. When the matter could not be settled and it was clear that the litigation must proceed to a conclusion, I began to see that the entire process of litigation and the resolution of a conflict between two parties to a lawsuit as a sort of game. It became clear that litigation was a game which could be played very effectively while still remaining dispassionate and emotionally balanced. I found that I could even more effectively accomplish the goal of furthering my client's interest in a lawsuit by not succumbing to angry reactions to the actions of the other side. By remaining emotionally balanced in the face of aggressive hardball tactics against me by my opponents in litigation, I found that I could speak with even stronger words and still take strong actions. It was much easier to effectively implement the strong actions necessary to tactically and strategically further the best interests of my client without becoming emotionally caught up in the battle itself. The realization of these truths and the ability to put them into action in my profession are the two key elements that enabled me to continue to practice law after I began meditating. 
without the balance and calmness of mind that came to me through my meditation practice, I would have been unable to continue to work as a lawyer. It had become virtually impossible for me to continue to face the difficulties inherent in representing clients who have problems and who are engaged in serious conflicting relationships with other people. Dhamma made it possible again. My experience with the application of Vipassana to my professional life has helped me understand more deeply the meaning of the phrase art of living. Without the application of this art to my profession, I would have had to change it and do something entirely different for my livelihood. Thomas Crisman, Dallas, USA A good teacher lingers in the memory, not for their theorems or drills, but for more elusive qualities that catch a spark in us, a love of learning, responsiveness, humour. In their classroom or office, we forget schooling, and instead we harvest precious lessons for life. Guy Dubois a schoolteacher from France presented his particular professional experience to a Vipassana seminar at Damagiri, India. I have been meditating for almost six years now and would like to give a glimpse of some of the benefits that I have gradually gained regarding my activities as teacher and educator. Nine years ago, I began to teach with all the enthusiasm and goodwill of my youth. But within a short time, I realised that even these qualities and all my scholastic knowledge only gave me superficial fulfilment. In the East, discipline and respect for the teacher still exist. In my country, France, if the teacher is not more interesting than the television, the students soon become restless and challenging making him uncomfortably aware of his own shortcomings. When this happens, and when the enthusiasm fades away, quite often he will respond negatively and subjectively. As a consequence, in order to protect himself, a teacher might build a wall of defence, making his teaching distant, cold, strict and academic, producing a lifeless routine in the classroom. Alternatively, might become overwhelmed, which could lead to smoking, drinking, tranquilizers, and sleeping pills, even a nervous breakdown. In France, we have psychiatric clinics, especially for teachers who cannot cope with the stress of teaching. For my part, instead of finding fault in others, I was sincerely determined to solve the problem at its root, and my quest finally brought me to Vipassana. Within my first meditation course, many realities became clearer. My suffering was more bitter than I could ever imagine. Even with my genuine goodwill to help by teaching, I was still unknowingly throwing my inner conflicts on pupils. Compensating for past frustrations and inferiority complexes by various games of my ego. So, out of fear of being overpowered, I was trying to manipulate to control students, either through knowledge or by authoritarian blind reactions. Also, I could not admit in front of others when I was wrong or ignorant. 
totally engaged in making shows or fearful of being hurt. I was only able to give attention to and really know the pupils who either pleased me by their brightness or those who made a lot of disturbance. But by serious practice of vipassana, my ability to be aware of the habit pattern of my mind and their manifestation on my body through sensations has increased as well as my patient acceptance of them. So naturally, my stress has been diminishing and my behaviour changing. And now it's like my eyes have been opened. In every successful student, I see also their underlying suffering. In the anonymous silent ones, I discover their inequalities. Towards the naughty ones, because I recognise the same misery in me, deeper understanding and tolerance radiate. Whenever I am overwhelmed by negativities, I try to feel these unpleasant sensations with a balanced mind, and very soon my irritation decreases. But if I have to take strong action, I have the courage to carry it out, aware that my role is to help rather than please. By feeling less superior, the atmosphere in the classroom changes. Greater confidence between myself and the students is established which opens their minds to more difficult topics and increases my sensitivity to problem areas. My words and deeds naturally get strengthened. My ability to communicate effectively expands, not only with the limited intellectual mind, but from the totality of one human being to another equal human being. Here the real exchange starts, where we give and receive on both sides. You ask what I do. Well, I'm a teacher. I teach in a community college near Seattle. I work with international students as a teacher of English as a second language, ESL. That's a surface view of my job. But underneath, it's more about language as a vehicle of communication. I'm hopefully enabling people to communicate better with one another so that the end result will be a more harmonious environment in which people can interact. I've chosen an international group of people to work with because I feel it's critical for people to be able to interact internationally. Some success has come from that. Here's an example. During this last year, I was working on a special contract in an electronics company and a large percentage of the workers there were from Southeast Asia. They'd been there working in this company for a long time, 8, 10, 15 years, and still they weren't talking to the native English speakers in the company. They would work together, but they wouldn't talk. So I developed a program where I was hired to teach ESL. I said, no, I'm going to teach communication skills, and I want these Americans coming into this class as well. I don't want only these non-native speakers. And we sat them down together. And we gave them some things to do together. And they came out afterwards saying, I've never talked to this person before. Now I talk to them in the hall. This is what I do. I'm teaching language, but I'm teaching it as a vehicle for people to interact on more than just a, hi, how are you doing level. 
I apply Vipassana in my work all the time. For me, Vipassana is a way of finding out the truth of the matter. It's always with me because, as much as possible, I'm aware of the truth within. Being aware of sensations, being aware of the breath, being aware of how that's manifesting, being aware of bringing it into my interactions, that quality of understanding, of wisdom, of compassion, of metta. And so, as much as I possibly can, that's what I try to infuse my work with as a teacher. The most important thing for me as an instructor, which is my chosen profession, is to model what I understand to be the truth in the best possible way I can. That will impact the students, has, continues to, and I keep working to perfect it. In conversation, Peter Martin, who lives and works in Washington, USA. At times, as a counsellor, I have to deal with violent students and situations. One situation comes to my mind. A 13-year-old student, I will call him John, has attended our school since kindergarten. Usually, he is a pleasant and polite boy, but when he gets angry, he is at times almost uncontrollable. Although John still has difficulties, he has improved greatly over the years. Many times he will come to me to tell me how angry he is with another child, but through talking it out, he's able to settle these differences peacefully. There is still the rare occasion where I have had to restrain him physically, and as he's quite big and powerful for his age, may actually have to sit on him until he calms down. John comes from an environment where problems are often solved by violence. This year, I was helping to teach a class with a guest speaker when John and another boy had a misunderstanding. Before anyone knew what was happening, John pulled this boy from his seat onto the floor and was punching him. I needed to restrain John physically and push him out of the room. I took him to my office and spoke to him quietly. After a fair amount of time, he'd calmed down enough to speak with the other boy. Apologies were made, and in the end they worked out their differences enough that they were actually friends for the rest of the school year. In addition, John wrote a letter of apology to our guest. Throughout this episode, I tried to use what I'd learned through Vipassana to handle the situation. I stayed calm, did not get angry, even though I did have to act quickly and strongly. When talking with John, I felt my metta, expressed as caring and concern, helped him calm down and feel less defensive. He was then willing to look at and admit what he had done wrong and to take appropriate action to make up for the situation. I was able to help both boys come to a mutually satisfying understanding by not reacting, but by looking at the situation clearly and calmly. Fortunately, this extreme situation is rare. At the same time, it is common for me to have to sit with children or their families when a tragedy has occurred, the death of a grandparent or parent, or a separation in the family. At times, when there's not much to say, I find myself sitting quietly with the child, sending metta. 
he or she tells me as they leave my office that though they still feel sad, they are more at peace. Sheldon Klein is an elementary school counsellor in Canada. Both he and his wife practice Vipassana. The Buddha has been described as the great physician for his unique prescription to end human suffering. Meditation, by healing the healer, enhances substantively the quality of care given to the sick in our communities. Dr. Omprakash, one of the leading doctors in Burma, later moved to Delhi, India, where he continued his professional work, including service at free clinics, into his 80s. Vipassana helps a lot in the practice of medicine. I was quite young when I started practicing Vipassana. At that time, I was living in Burma and had a flourishing practice, seeing 250 to 300 patients every day. On entering the clinic, I used to be excited and agitated, wondering how I could see so many patients and how I could finish my work in time. I often used to lose my temper and would get angry at the nurse and would shout at my assistant. But as I started practicing Vipassana, I saw that I was able to work without losing my peace of mind. My medical practice grew, but I no longer felt agitated. My attitude towards my problems changed. Initially, I used to think about the patient's ability to pay for my treatment. After Vipassana, I started thinking, oh, what would I do if my son or grandson became sick? This child is like my grandson. I found that now I had nothing but compassion and loving kindness for my patients. I also found that my treatments became more effective and beneficial. I was giving the same medicines, but the results were far better. The patients would become well more quickly, even though I was giving the same medicines. In fact, I was using smaller quantities, so people would ask if I was giving them homeopathic medicines, and why I was not giving them modern conventional medicines. I realised that the medicines I gave were less important than my compassion and metta. Patients started getting cured no matter what medicine I prescribed. Thus, the professional can benefit from Vipassana and help people. I didn't become a physician until a number of years after I'd started practicing Vipassana, but it's such a support in the profession. One of the things that I notice is that in any helping profession, you're working with people, you're constantly surrounded by people that are sick. They are really suffering in a very obvious way. They're scared, they're in pain, they're often angry, they often feel ripped off and bitter and twisted. Why is this happening to me? Or they're angry because they're trying to cover up guilt or fear about what's going on. They're losing control and you're surrounded by all this all the time. It's very hard not to get pulled into it or for thoughts to go through your head. For example, say a patient comes in and starts telling me about their drug problem or their alcohol problem. Little thoughts might come in there, contempt for the person like, 
oh, get your act together. Then maybe they even get abusive. That happens quite often. They throw their anger at you. The more you do vipassana, the more you become aware of your own reactions. And you just come back to your sensations for a minute. And all this defensiveness and ego comes up like, how dare this person treat me like that? I'm trying to help them. And it's just enough sometimes. Sometimes you make the wrong choice and you react and you lash out at them. But sometimes it's enough to kind of calm it down so you can get past your own ego and say, God, this guy is really hurting. Let me see what I can do to help him. And sometimes you succeed. Sometimes you fail. But the process really works. It also helps if you're being pulled down by a depressed person and you start to feel down and helpless, like, how am I going to help? I don't see what I can do. You just try to come back to this base of balance or equanimity. Get out of your own attachment to having to be the hero and having to help everybody and fix everything. and Just be there for the person. People seem to get aligned with that. It helps them. It certainly prevents you from being sucked in. LeMay Henderson sat her first Vipassana retreat in the USA in 1985. All her family have since taken courses. Joe Poland from Canada recently returned to medical practice after giving long-time service to Vipassana around the world. Many years ago, I struck up a deep friendship with an 85-year-old crippled farmer patient of mine. We would while away the hours in his kitchen, drinking tea and swapping stories. He was a very practical man who'd been successful to almost everything he did. He told me that he only went to school for one day and learned all he needed to know. The teacher wrote on the board, Never be idle. So he went back to the farm and started working. He also told me that in the good old days, he had had a doctor who was a real doctor. He said the moment you entered his office, you started feeling better. And by the time you left his office, you felt even more relieved, although you hadn't yet taken any medicine. He then explained that it's very easy to be a good doctor. All you need to do is to give the patients lots of TLC, tender, loving care. Certainly, this is not all there is to the practice of medicine, but it is a part which is gradually being replaced by our dependence on investigations, tests and so on to make the diagnosis. Through Vipassana and the development of metta, we can rekindle this TLC. Physician, heal thyself is a well-known phrase. We of the healing professions should take this to heart if we really want to help ourselves and likewise our patients. Power for good. Politicians and administrators hold some of the most powerful positions in society 
with the potential for affecting the lives of huge populations. But, as we know, together with power goes temptation. The almost irresistible temptation to abuse office and public trust for their own ends, financial, sexual, dynastic, and so on. Undertaking such responsibilities and carrying them out humanely, efficiently, and with integrity is rare indeed. Using one's own vision and strength of character to transform institutions for the selfless benefit of others requires special qualities. A very few individuals, Gandhi, Mandela, Mother Teresa, seem to be born to lead in this unique way. But whatever our starting point, the process of self-introspection and purification of mind through Vipassana offers all of us a chance of lifetime learning, creative participation, and of realising the very best in us. Despite the handicap of poverty and lack of higher education, U Ba Kin made his way professionally. He won admiration for his honesty, intelligence and willingness to work hard. From being a junior clerk in the colonial administration, he rose in 1948 to become the first accountant general of the newly independent government of Burma. By that time, he'd already been practicing Vipassana meditation for over 10 years. He made rapid progress on the path and began to teach the technique when work duties allowed. For the next two decades, he combined the responsibilities of serving his country as a high-ranking civil servant with those of a lay meditation teacher, producing outstanding results in both fields and earning for himself the title Sayaji, respected teacher. Uba Kin was both a man of principle and extremely practical in dealing with people. He could be soft as a rose petal or hard as a diamond as the situation required. By introducing the practice of Vipassana to the officers and staff of the Accountant General's office, Uba Kin brought about remarkable improvements in that government department. The Prime Minister recognised the scale of this achievement and wanted an honest administration. So, he personally assigned Sayaji to work with the State Agriculture Marketing Board, one of the most important government offices, which was in poor shape. The report of the Committee of Inquiry investigating the affairs of the board unflinchingly exposed a net of corruption and inefficiency. To reform the board, it would be necessary to override the opposition of the traders and politicians involved. When it was announced that Ubar Kin was to be appointed chairman of the board, all the executive officers in the department went on strike fearful that the man who'd exposed their malpractices and inefficiencies was now to become their superior. Sayaji remained firm. He continued the work of administration with just the clerical staff. After several weeks, the strikers, comprehending that Sayaji was not going to submit to their pressure, capitulated unconditionally and returned to their posts. Having established his authority, Sayaji then began, with great love and compassion, to change the entire atmosphere of the board and its workings. 
many of the officers actually joined Vipassana courses under his guidance. In the two years that Sayaji held the chairmanship, the board attained record levels in export and profit and efficiency reached an all-time high. From the Sayaji Ubakin Journal. After several years working as an economic policy analyst and advisor in the UK, I found that my work began to suffer from problems in my personal life. I decided to leave the job and resolve my difficulties. I learned the technique of Vipassana during my travels and have continued to practice since 1972. Meditation has brought major changes in the direction of my life. In 1984, settled in Australia with a wife and two children. I decided to return to economics after a gap of nearly 12 years. From initial research work for the state of Queensland, I was soon involved in cabinet meetings and strategic decision making. The practice of Vipassana has contributed to my working life in many ways. It has provided a psychological and temperamental basis for dealing with major policy issues and leaders of society, often under extreme pressure. It has helped me to see clearly the essence of a problem and to maintain sustained effort as required. It has also provided a basis for contributing to the morale and well-being of my fellow workers. Martin Clark is a senior economist and government advisor in Australia. Reluctantly, the Home Secretary for the state of Rajasthan, India, agreed to accompany his wife on a Vipassana retreat. He was amazed at the result, not only at the joy and new hope in his wife's face, but at the benefits he himself felt, and the realisation that in just ten days one could learn a technique which had unlimited possibilities for self-improvement. In the area of education and training, Attempts were ongoing worldwide to devise a technique which can bring about changes in people's attitude. Ways of imparting information, knowledge and skills had been greatly refined, but no reliable method had been found which can transform the human mind and human behaviour. Vipassana, he realised, could have a major impact on governments through attitude change. The state government took a pioneering decision to introduce Vipassana as a means of reform in its own organisations. Courses attended by both prisoners and staff were arranged in jail, and the police academy also hosted a course, both demonstrating a significant impact on the participants. During the same period, some senior officer meditators in the home department were instrumental in initiating internal reforms, leading to the reduction of paperwork, quicker decision-making, the clearance of years' work backlog and better staff-officer relationships. In 1977, the Rajasthan state government leased very suitable land outside the majestic city of Jaipur for the construction of a Vipassana centre, Damatali. The success of these initiatives showed what could be done in the direction of change and reform in government through Vipassana. Many states have now taken up the Government of India's recommendation 
to introduce Vipassana in prisons as a reform measure. A number of states also offer paid leave to civil servants so that they can attend a retreat. The experience of a Vipassana course is being incorporated into some training programs in the police service for business and technology graduates, for the next generation's high-flying administrators. 2,000 years before, the great Emperor Ashoka, a ruler to rival Caesar or Charlemagne, had shown the way. Renouncing the cruelty of conquest for which he was known, he dedicated himself to the welfare of his people. Leading by example, encouraging the populace to take up meditation, he used Vipassana as an instrument of reform in the governance of his vast empire. The record of his administration, chiselled on pillars and rocks, remains to this day. High aspirations and management skills alone cannot bring about good government. Attitudes have to change, a timeless challenge to humankind. Vipassana can and does change attitudes. Ram Singh, Rajasthan State Home Secretary during the 1970s, lives in Jaipur with his wife and family. Find this and many more podcasts at Pariyati, a non-profit publisher who offers written, audio, and video content and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information, please go to www.pariyatti.org. That's pariyati.org. For more information about Vipassana meditation, please visit www dhamma.org. That's dhamma.org.